You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. On the morning of April 29th, the soldiers were aroused from their slumbers by the beating of the long roll. What an ominous sound is the long roll to the soldier wrapped in his blanket and enjoying the sweets of sleep. It is like a fire bell at night. It denotes battle. It tells the soldier the enemy is moving. It means haste and active preparation. A battle is imminent. The soldiers thus roused, as if from their long sleep since Fredericksburg, feel in a touchous mood. The frightful scenes of Fredericksburg and Maurice Hill rise up before them as a specter. Soldiers rush out of their tents, asking questions and making suppositions. Others are busily engaged folding blankets, tearing down tents, and making preparations to move. Companies formed into regiments, and regiments into brigades. The distant boom of cannon beyond the Rappahannock tells us that the enemy is to cross the river again and try conclusions with the soldiers of Lee. All expected a bloody engagement, for the Federal Army had been greatly recruited under excellent discipline and headed by Fighting Joe Hooker. He was one of the best officers in that army, and he himself had boasted that his was the finest army that had ever been organized upon the planet. It numbered 131,000 men of all arms, while Lee had barely 60,000. We moved rapidly in the direction of Fredericksburg. I never saw Kershaw look so well, riding his iron gray at the head of his columns. One could not but be impressed with his soldierly appearance. He seemed a veritable knight of old. Leading his brigade above the city, he took position in the old entrenchments. Lieutenant D. Augustus Dickert, 3rd South Carolina Infantry, Kershaw's Brigade. Hey everyone, welcome to the 260th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, at the end of the last show, the Army of the Potomac's commander, Fighting Joe Hooker, had at last set his plan for the spring campaign in motion, and the three corps in his flanking force started their march upriver on April 27, 1863. 
We'll again suggest you get out your Civil War atlas and take a look at it, since that'll help you understand what we're talking about when we say that Hooker planned to have the 5th, 11th, and 12th Corps move up the Rappahannock, bypassing the closely guarded Banks and U.S. forts, and cross the river at Cully's Ford, some 20 miles upstream from Fredericksburg. Howard's 11th Corps and Slocum's 12th Corps would then turn south and cross the Rapidan River at Germana Ford, while Meade's 5th Corps would cross the Rapidan a bit to the east at Eli's Ford and then drive the Confederates away from Banks and U.S. Fords so Couch's 2nd Corps could cross the Rappahannock there. Couch was to await further orders once he crossed the river, but the other three corps, Meade's, Howard's, and Slocum's, were to reunite about 10 miles west of Fredericksburg at a rural crossroads called Chancellorsville. Once there, they would only have to drive on a few more miles to break out of the tangled expanse of scrub pine, oak, and dense underbrush known as the Wilderness. Charging out of the Wilderness, the Federal Flanking Force would fall upon Robert E. Lee's left and rear, while other elements of the army, having crossed the Rappahannock near Fredericksburg, would apply pressure to the rebel lines there so that Lee wouldn't be free to turn and confront that threat barreling down on him out of the wilderness. Put simply, the Federal flanking force charging out of the wilderness would be the hammer. The units crossing at Fredericksburg would be the anvil, and Hooker would crush Robert E. Lee between them. Or, if Lee attempted to flee the trap and withdraw toward Richmond, the Army of the Potomac would catch him and smash the rebel army while it was retreating. Well, that was Fighting Joe's plan anyway. But you guys know what happens when I say that. So, as we'll see, it didn't quite work out that way. Back on Monday, April 20th, a train had pulled into Guinea Station behind the Confederate lines. Waiting in the rain at the depot was Stonewall Jackson. He was waiting for two very special passengers, and when Jackson saw them, he went forward to hug his wife and the five-month-old daughter he had never seen. Protecting Anna and little Julia from the rain, Jackson helped them into a carriage that took them up to his headquarters at the Yerby Plantation, near Hamilton's Crossing on the Rappahannock. On April 23rd, the day she was five months old, Jackson arranged for his chaplain, Reverend Lacey, to baptize little Julia there in the Yerby's parlor. Stonewall's whole staff attended. Later, Robert E. Lee came to call and admired Julia and charmed Anna. All in all, the family spent almost nine precious days together as the dogwood and lilac bloomed. But then at dawn on the morning of April 29th, someone came clomping up the stairs and knocked on the Jackson's bedroom door. It was a courier from Jubal Early, one of Stonewall's division commanders. Jackson got up, pulled on his boots, and stepped outside. Returning a moment later, he told Anna that it looked as if Hooker were crossing the river. Jackson made preparations to send his wife and baby home, said a long goodbye to them, then rode to the front. 
Near daylight, we got the pontoons about half launched in the river. Crack, smash, whiz, ping, came the musketry volleys of long lines of graybacks in the rifle pits. Such a skedaddling of negroes, horse, extra duty men of the pontoons never before was seen. Our generals looked blank. It seemed as if the Rappahannock must run red with blood to force a crossing. Our regiment was in the advance. Troops were moved down along the edge of the river and batteries planted on the hill's back to fire at the rebels as hard as they could while we ran into the boats, rowed them across the river, scrambled up the bank, and drove the rebels out with a bayonet, or held ground if we could until the boats could bring more troops to help us. After these dispositions had been made, we moved down over the open field in line of battle, truly the forlorn hope of the army. The rebels opened fire on us, and our men along the river and the batteries returned their fire. We moved down in line until within two hundred yards of the boats, then double-quicked and into the boats the men plunged and down on their faces. The storm of bullets was perfectly awful. Heave her off! The first man up the bank shall be made a general. Show the army why the old Sixth Corps was chosen to lead them. It was the fiercest regatta ever run in this country. It was no time to quail or flinch. One halt or waver was destruction. I stood in the bow of the boat I commanded, swinging my sword in one hand and cheering on the oarsmen, holding the pistol in the other to shoot them if they wavered or flinched. Across the river, we tumbled into the mud or waist-deep water, waded ashore, crawled and scrambled up the bank. Nobody could say who was first. Crack, crack, for two minutes, and then the rebels were running like sheep over the field or throwing down their arms as prisoners. I took the flag and swung it as a signal of our victory and such a shout of triumph as went up from the thousand anxious spectators on the north bank of the river. It was good to hear. Lieutenant Colonel Rufus Dawes, 6th Wisconsin Infantry, Meredith's Brigade. That Wednesday, April 29th, while one wing of Hooker's army, the flanking force, was completing its smoothly executed crossing of the Rappahannock and Rapidan Rivers to the northwest, the other wing of the army made its opening move of the campaign. Major General John Sedgwick had command of the left wing of the Army of the Potomac. As we said before, his orders were to cross the Rappahannock and go through the motions as if he were going to attack Lee's carefully prepared defenses around Fredericksburg in order to keep the rebels busy and prevent their moving to counter the threat from the Federal flanking force. That courier from Jubal Early that awakened Stonewall Jackson on the morning of the 29th was bringing the news that Sedgwick's wing of the Federal Army was crossing the river. Of course, that morning neither Early nor Jackson knew that the enemy crossing was just a feint, and so shortly after daybreak, a lieutenant on Jackson's staff, James Power Smith, entered Lee's tent at Army headquarters to wake the commanding general. Lieutenant Smith said Jackson had sent him with the word that the enemy was crossing the Rappahannock just below Fredericksburg in force under cover of heavy fog on the river. 
Lee, joking with Smith, replied, Well, I thought I heard firing, and was beginning to think it was time some of you young fellows were coming to tell me what it was all about. Then, more seriously, Lee said, Tell your general I am sure he knows what to do. I will meet him at the front very soon. As for the Federals, Hooker's plan relied heavily on the actions of the left wing of his army. Sedgwick would command not only his own Sixth Corps, but John Reynolds' First Corps, Daniel Sickles' Third Corps, and a Second Corps division led by John Gibbon. In all, Sedgwick would command nearly 65,000 men, a considerable jump-up from the 5,000 he had last commanded in battle at Antietam. As outlined in Hooker's plan, Sedgwick was to force a crossing of the Rappahannock below Fredericksburg with elements of the 1st and 6th Corps. Using an amphibious assault, the Federals here would establish a bridgehead across from Lee's line at Prospect Hill, then move a sizable portion of Sedgwick's force across the river to hold Lee's attention, while Hooker's flanking force swiftly marched to Chancellorsville and then came charging out of the wilderness. It should be noted, though, that despite the importance he attached to the diversionary actions of the left wing of his army, there's no record that Hooker ever met with Sedgwick before the campaign began to personally explain the plan to him. Thaddeus Lowe's observation balloons had been making periodic ascents above the Union lines since March, and on the morning of April 29th, another floated overhead. Hooker didn't put much faith in the so-called Balloon Corps' ability to gather useful intelligence, but he thought that their presence now would add to the deception that the Federal Army's main effort was this crossing of the river at Fredericksburg. Meanwhile, on the ground, by midday, more and more blue-clad soldiers were pouring across the Rappahannock on pontoon bridges that were quickly constructed after a foothold had been successfully seized on the far river bank by the first federal troops crossing in boats early that morning. As we said, first thing that morning, Jubal Early, the division commander holding the southernmost end of the Confederate line below Fredericksburg, had sent word of the Federal crossing to his corps commander, Stonewall Jackson. After bidding his wife and infant daughter goodbye, Stonewall arrived at the front by 8 a.m. Up in Fredericksburg, the bells in the Episcopal Church were sounding the alarm, letting soldiers and civilians alike know that something was happening. By the time Robert E. Lee arrived on the scene, Early's troops had been sent forward to take up a position along the tracks of the Richmond, Potomac, and Fredericksburg Railroad, and more Confederate troops were on the way. Jackson had already sent word for division commanders Robert E. Rhodes, Raleigh Colston, and A.P. Hill to converge on the area around Prospect Hill. From Prospect Hill, Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee continued to watch the Federals. It was clear from the number of troops involved that the Yankees were certainly planning something, but it was curious that rather than crossing the river and driving straight across the fields while the Confederates were scrambling to consolidate their position, the Federals instead just sat there. And so as the hours passed, Robert E. Lee realized that the Federal crossing here just below Fredericksburg, which had started out with a roar, was quickly petering out into something much less impressive.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavors, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. Robert E. Lee now considered whether to fall on the Federal Bridgehead with the full force of Stonewall Jackson's 2nd Corps, or wait and see how the situation played out. Lee had no idea what Hooker's intentions might be, but with Longstreet still away, off in Southside Virginia, Lee's army was under strength, and of course, there were the ever-present supply issues. The Confederate commander had also begun to receive word from Jeb Stuart's cavalry that a Federal force of unknown size was moving north of the Rapidan River. Lee received word, too, that Union horsemen, Stoneman's Cavalry Corps, was working its way west. To counter any federal threat to his left and rear, Lee dispatched Richard H. Anderson's division toward the Chancellorsville area. Anderson was to take up a defensive position to block any enemy advance from that direction. At first, the brigades of William, Little Billy Mahone, Carnot Posey, and Ambrose Wright took up positions right around the crossroads. But Anderson quickly realized that that spot in the midst of the wilderness wasn't conducive to defensive operations. So he ordered his men back toward the Zoan Church Ridge, three miles east of Chancellorsville. Pickets of the 12th Virginia were left around the Chancellorsville crossroads to warn of any federal advance. Meanwhile, at Fredericksburg, rumors began to spread among the Confederate soldiers that Lee and Jackson were going to order a retreat. Stonewall irritably dismissed the gossip with the assurance that rather than retreating, the army would attack the Federal bridgehead, but Robert E. Lee quietly dismissed that idea. 
Lee could see that the Yankees had an overwhelming number of artillery pieces overlooking their bridgehead, and so a rebel attack over the open fields would be little short of suicidal. Lee could also see something else: that the Federal troops were already beginning to throw up entrenchments. The Yankees here just didn't seem to be acting as if they were preparing to launch a major assault on the Confederate lines. And since the Federals didn't seem to pose an immediate threat, Lee saw no pressing need to advance and take the fight to them. At least not until he had a clearer picture of what was taking shape around him. That afternoon, Hooker left Army headquarters to join the flanking force at Chancellorsville. Before he left, he should have made certain that Sedgwick understood the need for the left wing of the army to act aggressively in order to pin Lee in place and prevent the Confederate commander from sending reinforcements west to Zoan Church. As it was, Sedgwick's passivity allowed Lee a free hand to move. And at just the time when the intelligence coming to Lee finally gave him an idea of what Hooker was up to, first came word that Anderson's men had engaged the lead elements of Meade's corps. To this news, Lee responded, "I hope you have been able to select a good line and can fortify it strongly. Set all your spades to work as vigorously as possible." Next came word from Jeb Stuart, who said he was fighting his way back to the army from the far left, slowing the advance of Howard's and Slocum's corps as best he could. Lee now realized that a sizable federal force, at least three corps strong, was converging on Chancellorsville. Coupled with the odd inactivity in front of the lines at Fredericksburg, the Confederate commander at last understood that his opposite number. By sending a strong force up river to cross the Rappahannock, then move down across the Rapidan, had stolen a long march on him, and that Mister F. J. Hooker was attempting to outflank him. That afternoon, Lee wired a message to Jefferson Davis saying, "Object evidently to turn our left. If had Longstreet's division, would feel safe." Earlier in the day, when it was obvious the Federals were crossing the river below Fredericksburg in strength, Lee had asked Davis to recall Longstreet's troops from Southside Virginia so they could rejoin the army. But there was no getting around the fact that Lee's trusted lieutenant and his troops were 150 miles and at least a week away, so Lee was going to have to fight this battle without them. Lee would have to make do with the troops that he had on hand. And so he set about moving his army to meet the threat posed by Hooker's flanking force. He dispatched the division of Lafayette McClaws west to reinforce Anderson, less one brigade left to the rear of the city of Fredericksburg. Those two divisions of Anderson and McClaws, the two divisions from Longstreet's first corps that hadn't accompanied their commander to Southern Virginia, could field roughly fourteen thousand men. Lee knew that would be enough to slow, but not stop, the advance of Hooker's strong flanking force. And so Lee went on to issue orders that would direct the bulk of Stonewall Jackson's Second Corps, nearly twenty-nine thousand more men, to march to Zoan Church the next morning, May first. Lee was taking a great gamble. 
Jackson was to leave behind one division, just one division, to hold the line at Fredericksburg against Sedgwick's crossing force. That division, Jubal Early's, would have the support of the brigade left behind by McClaws, plus 56 cannon. In total, Early would have just over 10,000 men to watch Sedgwick's 65,000 at Fredericksburg, while the rest of Lee's army went off to confront Hooker's flanking force. Earlier that day, with his plans for his left wing and his right wing seemingly unfolding without a hitch, Hooker had boasted, quote, The rebel army is now the legitimate property of the Army of the Potomac. But Robert E. Lee, who was refusing to follow Hooker's script, was about to show that he had a thing or two to say about that claim of ownership. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Voices of the Civil War, Chancellorsville, by the editors of Time Life Books. Each time we do a major battle story arc, we get questions about where we find the first-person quotations that we use with those episodes, and our answer is that we turn to this excellent Voices of the Civil War series of books from Time Life. Now, these books are long out of print, but you can still find them at all the usual places on the internet, and they make an excellent addition to your Civil War library. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can sign up to join the Strawfoot Brigade, just like Nikolai, Ronald, and John did this past week. Thanks, guys. Yep, thanks. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you join us again next time as we continue with the story of the Battle of Chancellorsville. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.